from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yaroshevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to our podcast, and thank you for joining us. This podcast will navigate the problems that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences as underrepresented professionals in the music industry. Our guest today is world-renowned pianist Sarah Buchner. She made her debut as a guest soloist with the Canton Symphony Orchestra in 1994 when she performed Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto. She has subsequently performed Mozart's 24th Piano Concerto in 2012 and Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini in 2016. She has also appeared as a guest soloist with the New York Philharmonic, Philadelphia Orchestra, and San Francisco Symphony, among many others. She was a bronze medalist at the 1984 Tchaikovsky Competition and is currently on the faculty at Temple University in Philadelphia, where she makes her home. Sarah Buchner, welcome to Orchestrating Change. <laughs> my goodness, what an intro. I just—I feel like cheering. That's fantastic. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank, <laughs> thank you. you We're so... Wonderful intro. I want to add, by the way, in addition to those concerts in Canton, that I fondly recall my very first concert with Gerhard Zimmermann was in the summer of 1978 when I was still a student at the Juilliard School. Oh. And he, he came to, to Juilliard and he auditioned some student performers for a summer series. Uh, he was a guest, uh, guest conductor of the St. Louis Symphony, their mm. pop series. And he engaged me to play the completely unknown and, and somewhat decently forgotten piano concerto, Adolf von Henselt. It was a contemporary of Chopin, uh, a very difficult piano concerto. But I always fondly recall that time many years ago when I was a bit younger. Gerhard had a fabulous mustache and he was young. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's when we first met. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Um, like we said, we're, 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 so, we're so excited to, to speak with you today. And I think we just wanted to start off with a conversation about what led you or what, what made you want to become a pianist and then a performer subsequently after that. That's the kind of thing people will ask and you really can't answer it right. because it's exactly the opposite. Um, you don't choose music. Music chooses Choose. you. So, so when I was three, four years old, extremely young, I, uh, I was caught. My mother saw me walking to the radio in our living room every afternoon at 4.30 and I was glued to the opening music, which was uh, Mozart's Overture to the Marriage of Figaro that started the classical program at that, at that hour. You know, but I don't know. But just kind of got me very, very buzzed every day when I when I did that. So um, my brother was already starting some piano lessons. He's a bit older than me, and she asked the teacher to teach me. She said, "No, I was too young." But at some point, my mother, who's a tiger mom, just pushed me, pushed me, pushed me. And uh, Miss Wolf, my first teacher, picked me up by the hands. She told me many years later, dumped me in her lap sat me at the piano and I could play all my brother's pieces. I knew them all very, very well. And then other things, I could read the music without any instruction, mm. which is pretty rare. It's kind of an innate uh, kind of talent. And then she asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I told her I wanted to be a piano player and a pig farmer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I feel it. fortunate that the first has come true. And there's still t enough time, I think, <laughs> 
I can make it in the second. I've got to study study over my swine flus and various other things. But, right. Uh, for some reason, I just I just love pigs. I still love them. I I don't know. It's it's a flip side of my personality. But uh, I love it. Uh, before I die, I do absolutely want to give a piano recital in a, a hog farm somewhere for amazing swine. Um, I'm not sure what I'd play for that occasion, but I'm sure they would they would like it. Uh, yes, uh, we should arrange yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, I love that. So you knew. <laughs> All along, from a young age, you wanted to be a professional pianist. Yes, I was just innate, and, and my, my mom was uh, very concerned. Uh, my parents were kind of poor, and my brother and I were raised in an atmosphere where yeah, my mother especially wanted us to have more uh, learning and cultural exposure, and so forth. So we had reproductions of great artworks that were borrowed from the library. We had paperbacks and classic books and so forth. And she took us to concerts, quite a few concerts when, when I was young. Uh, and, and I just loved it, especially she got me into the Baltimore Symphony when I was like three and four years old. And I was just mesmerized. I mean, the sound and the look of all that. And uh, I, I remember the first time I begged her to take me backstage and she did because uh, there had been a piano concerto. And I think it was Byron Janis, who I later studied with many, many years later. But I didn't want to meet the pianist. I wanted to meet the guy who was hitting those the timpani so fast. <laughs> very exciting, and she, and I got to meet him. You know, I was very excited about that. <laughs> Amazing, wonderful. wonderful. So, the a big part of the reason, of course, that we ha are having you as our guest today is you are a transgender woman in the field of classical music, and very open and proud of that. So. Tell us from from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your journey as a transgender woman. From the time you began to realize that your biological sex didn't align with your gender identity, through when you actually transitioned. You know, I, I'm so happy that I've lived into an era where you know you're asking me that kind of question and discussing it is not some sort of big shocking thing or mm -hmm. or, or whatever. You know, because it's uh, my experience with that aspect of my of my life and personality has very much mirrored uh, the changes in the United States of America since I was since I was a child and has a lot of parallels also, also growing up in the Baltimore suburbs uh, which were then all white and are now all black with what I saw racially as a kid how I saw you know integration and how it started and uh, the various really you know problems and ugly stories that I witnessed from the close uh, close place uh, it was very, very surprising to me. Um, kids know who they are, and I knew that I was—I knew that I was a girl when I was very, very young. And this, this caused really not much of an issue when I was young before I went to school, other than times when when my mother would take me to the art museum and I'd point to a beautiful portrait of an elegant Elizabethan lady and say, "Mom, I want to look like that when I grow up." And she'd say, <laughs> huh you know <laughs> it would really like sort of blow her mind but you know people just sort of ignored that sort of thing and i mm. quickly learned when i did go to school that these kind of issues were just shoveled under the table and children are not as, as dumb or naive i think as adults really realize in in fifth grade we had a, a gentleman teacher who was gay and we we never discussed that it was just known it was sort of mr Naiman was funny you know, and that was the word that was used in the 1960s for people like that. So and so was funny. If you turn on the old game shows, you might see Charles Nelson Riley or Paul Lind, and they were also they were entertainers or Liberace. You know, they they were funny. You know, that was the code word for it. Mm. They don't really quite fit in. But being transgender was something that was just 
zero disgust mm -hmm. and 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 even as a child I remember thinking there was this gender wall that I got higher and higher the older I got in, in grade school and I thought when I can never jump that wall it was very strange to me I identified with female friends and female this and female that but I, I would say one of the worst experiences that brought that all together for me was uh, around third grade or so my my grandmother knew well that I, I just adored Mozart and she sewed me a velvet a purple velvet Mozart coat and a ruffled uh, sort of blouse to go with it and I wore this on Easter Sunday and you know that, okay that was sort of okay I guess anyway one morning I dressed myself for grade school and I put that on because I loved wearing it so much and mm -hmm. I went to school and I promptly got beaten up and there's, there's some dry blood on that shirt now I've kept it all these years mm -hmm. And when I got home, the principal called my mother, and of course he was furious at her. And, and he said, "He said you never allow your, your child to wear the wrong, the wrong sex clothes ever, ever again, or you know, can't come back." You know, it's like I was, I was to blame for the whole thing. Mm. So this was the the atmosphere uh, in which I would say GLBT folks grew up in in that in that time. Um, in my teens, I remember there was a very big story about Renee Richards, the transgender tennis player, and, mm. and I remember reading that story and it kind of like alerted my eyes for the first time that there were people who did that. Uh, and, but basically building a career in music is, is such a very hard thing. And in my 20s and in my early 30s, I had a public persona as David Buchner and I was terrified to come out of the closet. I, I couldn't really imagine it. I couldn't envision it. I think it was mostly it was the um, the rise of the internet, computers, home computers, and I started to discover chat rooms and mm -hmm. more information that uh, allowed me to embrace myself as who I am and not be so uh, so terrified. One of the biggest blocks to all LGBT folks, you know, coming out and dealing with things is lack of access to information and education. Mm -hmm. And there was a total lack of that when I was a child. It just was not not discussed uh, at all uh, so you know if you think that you're the only person in the room that feels like that you assume as I did that there was something wrong with me I mean I went to I was sent to psychiatrists and therapists and you know all with their reasons for why I felt that way and what was the problem and you know trying to correct me and fix this and fix that you know this kind of you know uh, what do they call it uh, reparative therapy or God knows mm. where. I mean, I feel like it's a miracle I didn't get subjected to electroshock therapy or, or, or a lobotomy or something. My God, these things happened in the 1930s right. and 40s. You know? right. so, um, so anyway, in any case, in my mid-30s, I transitioned and it cost me professionally quite heavily. Uh, I lost a lot of friends, a lot of support because, you know, I mean, these days I think transgender is a word that people know uh, and deal with hopefully in a happy way, but there are people who don't deal with it in a happy way, but they can't really ignore it anymore. But uh, at the time I transitioned, I was, I guess, the first person really in classical music who had ever done that. Uh, and I still remain pretty much the only well known uh, classical musician who's done that. I, I have actually met younger trans, trans uh, musicians and composers and performers and so forth. And we're just going to see more of us mm -hmm. coming up in the years ahead, of course. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel happy and honored to have lived into an age where I guess rather than being ashamed and shocked and afraid and embarrassed and run off to Romania, as one friend suggested <laughs> I do, ex-friend I should say, he said, well, you better go to Romania and you know, start a new life. You know, of all the countries, you know, 
not not France, not um, you know uh, something about Mauritania, perhaps the Maldives <laughs> Islands, you know, but Romania. Uh, I feel happy to have lived in an era where I'm, I I am in some ways a role model, and that I can speak to uh, younger people about uh, their own difficulties or conflicts, uh, coming of age uh, as LGBT folks. I. I, I do mentoring work for both the Juilliard School and the Royal Academy in London, thanks to Zoom, with mm -hmm. young people who are looking for support and role models and chat and so forth. And uh, I mean, if you had told me 20 years ago I'd be doing that, I, I would never have believed it. So, mm -hmm. so I'm very happy that the world has changed in, in important ways that way. Right. Do you, does it feel like, when you were younger, before you transitioned, do you feel like your... Um, gender dysphoria and the way you felt about yourself affected you as a musician mentally? Do you feel like that was any part of, of maybe what pushed you so hard to transition? Yeah, for sure. I, and I, you know, I have always felt my whole life that my music was a mirror of my soul and my spirit. When I play, who I am and how I feel is what comes out through my fingers uh, into the piano. Uh, and in my 30s was when I felt increasingly unable to connect those two. Uh, actually, ironically, as I was playing more concerts, the more I felt like it was like play acting. I, I wasn't mm -hmm. really being myself on stage. I was acting a role. Uh, I would put on the concert tales and go and do my job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when music becomes a job instead of a passion, it's all wrong. It's, 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 it's not good at all. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, I would say that, you know, the, the couple of years right after my transition when work just pretty much dried up was probably a good thing that would happen for me because I had to spend many hours at the piano just embracing myself and learning to trust, okay, here's this emerging new body and new person and, and is, you know, making sure it was genuine all over again. It was sort of like playing, playing from the gut all over again, which I really needed to do. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think almost any musician will tell you that when the music is hard to play, it means there's something going on. And there were several points in my life when that happened. I mean, in in my youth, when I had real crises with this, and I, up until that age, around 35, 36, I'd managed, okay, stuff it down, concentrate. It's about Mozart. It's not about you, you know, kind of feeling. But at a certain point, you blossom as an artist, and to you want to paint you want to paint your picture you don't want to paint someone else's right yes that's the way i'd put it yeah so you talked a little bit about how your transition affected your career mm. did you expect the kind of backlash from the profession that you got did you expect concerts to dry up i i suppose you probably were aware that you were taking a risk, but the way it all played out, was it what you expected? No, no, not at all. I, I um, you know, uh, before I transitioned, I made a list of five very trusted friends to talk to in advance, uh, some of them pretty prominent conductors, all of whom were immediately completely supportive and assured me uh, that uh, everything would go on as normal. And two of the most famous of them didn't hire me for 20 years after that point, you know, wow. after having beautiful soul-searching conversations with them. Yeah. Um, you know, I was furious at the time. I felt backstabbed. But 
um, they, of course, are not only responsible to music and to their audience, but also to, you know, uh, uh, administrative staff, to ticket holders, to people who buy the tickets and so forth. And I think it was something that just hadn't been done, and people were really kind of terrified about it. And that surprised me. I, you know, the, the terror about it was, was really strange to me. And I heard that word used. Uh, a few times. I was teaching yeah, at that time, uh, I was a part-time teacher at uh, three schools and one of them fired me. Uh, and um, the concerts really dried up in terms of um, future engagements not coming in. I had a couple of engagements where I had a contract and I got paid not to show up, not to play. Yeah. That was kind of amazing. Um, but I think what hurt me the most was people I was depending on you know, musical careers are a kind of a nexus, a connection sort of thing. You depend on the conductors who like to work with you. You depend on chamber musicians who like to play with you, uh, concert series that have had you year after year. These were the things that all dried up. They just, people who I thought were friends stopped calling. And there was a, it wasn't kind of an insulting thing. It was just sort of like an avoidance kind of thing. There was just, I wasn't getting anything. Uh, a couple of things kept me going. I was very lucky. I started to uh, play um, for the Mark Morris Dance Company at that time, and they actually asked me to be their artistic di uh, music director before I left New York. Uh, so I could have stayed in New York and done that, but it was, it was a, it's a very, very low salary. And, and I, I love playing with dancers, but not all the time. You know, it wasn't something I really wanted to do. Uh, I ended up teaching at a children's music school in, in uh, Westchester, and I thought that was the kind of job. At the age of 40, I was teaching little kids, and that was the kind of job I expected to do when I was right out of college, 21, 22, uh, and did. You know, so I sort of thought, well, I've set my life back about 20 years, and to some extent that was true. Um, but great fortune smiled upon me in, in a, a few years, of very dicey years went by, uh, where work was hard to find. But then I auditioned for a job at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, when I moved to Canada, I just hadn't played in Canada. People didn't know me. They knew my name by reputation, but they didn't know what I used to look like or what kind of, I don't know, persona they perceived I had or should have or whatever. And the dedicated agent I did move to at that time, I changed agents also, uh, was able to get me a fair amount of work in Canada that built over the years. And as I kept playing and playing and then videos started appearing, people started to hire me in the United States again. And those two conductors I mentioned hired me again. So, you know, it's kind of a long, a long road out and back, which, you know, sort of tells maybe the worst story of human beings that they're, you know, not as adaptable as you might like them to be. On the other hand, if you look at it the positive way, growth and change are possible, and people do certainly change. And I would say also amongst my circle of friends and family that, you know, some problems that I had over the years became, all of them became better. Uh, even just this past year, a dear, dear friend, a marvelous musician called me, and I hadn't talked to him in 20 years, and he said, you know, I, I really felt bad that we fell out of touch. And I thought, I would have preferred if you said, you know, I'm really sorry for being an being a jerk all those years ago. <laughs> but he said the words he was capable of saying. Yeah. And I accepted that, you know, because in a sense, I've grown also. I mean, I've learned a lot about people and about the human animal. And you can't expect from people what they cannot give. You, you will accept from people what they are able to offer. 
And, you know, for him, that was going a long, long way. So mm -hmm. I said, that's really great, gracious of you. And uh, we're, we're chatting now again, it's, which, is, which is very, very nice. So long road, very interesting road. <laughs> that is, I, I was going to say, I, I feel like if I were in your position, the urge to just be angry and to just want to, I don't know, I, the way that I feel you handled it and the way you just spoke about it was kind of mind-blowing to me, at least, about, because it feels like so, so obvious that you would just want to be mad that people... Well, you can't, you can't build on anger. Exactly, it's a, yeah, very, I it's think very that's... very poor foundation right. for, uh, for anything. And I, I will credit my, my dedicated agent for that as well. I used to really rant and rave at her a bit with the phone and <laughs> her about things. And, and don't be, don't be misled as Bugs Bunny would always mispronounce <laughs> the word misled. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't be misled. There, there have been a couple of occasions where I um, did read the riot act to a couple of people. I remember once threatening a New York presenter with a lawsuit. They, they weren't going to give me the concert they had promised anyway, so I figured with nothing to lose, I'm going to tell this person right. exactly what's coming. Uh, and that scared the hell out of them. <laughs> that was nice. Oh, man. Um, you know, uh, but as I said, you know, you you um, you have to think ahead. You mm. always, these kind of situations, you always have to think ahead. And there are people who have inspired me greatly over the years, not just musicians and so forth, but uh, but politicians as well. And I'll quote from a wonderful speech that Barack Obama recently gave, where he spoke of the need for patience and perseverance. These have been my two guide guide words for uh, this recent time right. to get through difficulties mm -hmm. perseverance is a very very important concept mm -hmm. you know you you have to keep the long road ahead keep the long picture in mind mm -hmm. um and i you know i'm also at the age where there are these young people following in my footsteps and i have a certain obligation not to not to bail out on them you know mm -hmm. and show them what what i think is a good way forward yeah. so there's there's expectations on my head. Yeah, it's like speak, like young people, people in the millennial generation tend to assume that music and the arts are open and inclusive. And I think that especially the younger generation sees it as a given. And yet in the classical music world, it feels that sometimes that is not the case. Uh, I mean, even, even here in Canton, you played once before your transition and twice after, and there was pushback from patrons about that so how you you spoke about it a little bit but navigating that where maybe people do want to hire you but they're balancing their community how their community feels it or how do you broach that conversation maybe with people I'm, uh, you know, it's it, that's something for my dedicated agent to mostly handle, mm -hmm. and I think she, she's she shielded me from uh, a fair amount of that over right. the years, uh, for which I, I guess I have to be uh, thankful. I mean, mm -hmm. that's why you have a manager to handle yeah. career issues like that. Um, people have mostly not really said those kind of things uh, to my face, mm -hmm. you know, which is which is uh, in a way problematic. I'd rather if people have something offensive and ignorant to say. <laughs> Please, you know, share it. <laughs> oh, man. But I've been mostly uh, very buoyed by uh, the young people I meet because uh, the young generation that we see today, they, they do not care about um, color, race, uh, religion, or gender. They're, they're exceedingly fluid on all of these subjects in a way that 
uh, my generation was not the generation above me certainly uh, was not and I'm really really happy to see that I mentioned a while back about civil rights and the white and black issues of Baltimore when I was a kid I have I have vividly remember so many uh, amazing uh, stories including one involving my own piano teacher he was a Filipino man a rather dark-skinned Asian man from Manila and uh, I remember coming to my piano lesson I was probably eight or nine years old and he took my mother aside and he said he, he asked her he said I really want to ask you an important question he said I just came back from South Carolina this recital I played I drove down there I'm driving back I stopped at the gas station to use the bathroom and they had these two signs one was white and one was black and he held up his hand he said he said to my mother he says Libby I don't know where to go mm. but he actually you know can you imagine being challenged as to what color are you wow. and it's and there's some sort of law mandating this you know wow. this is within memory of my own lifetime I I like to share that story because I think young people need to know how far they've come mm. in a very short space of time and that's because of the the dedicated hard work on awful lot of people mm -hmm. you know, so uh, you said one thing that I think is, is very I feel incumbent on me to say to young people is that you, you don't take those things for granted right. they can easily be taken away right uh, and I think you know you have to live in awareness and a certain amount of fear about that at any given time you know uh, freedom is people have died for freedom right you know? right yeah so you mentioned your family a couple of times, you just mentioned your mother, Libby, and uh, before we got on the air here, you mentioned your brother, Matthew. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, same, well, na same name as, uh, as yours truly here. <laughs> yes, exactly. How did your family handle your transition? Uh, I give them an F at the beginning and <laughs> an A at the end. <laughs> I think that's the best way I would I would uh, put it. Things were said that were hard to forget. Mm. Um, my mother handled it best. She was very resistant at first, but pretty quickly came to understand what the situation was. My brother and father quite a bit slower on the uptake there, but. There again, you know, I, I feel grateful for the lesson there of, of seeing, you know, I really admire that they learned and changed and mm. grew and uh, in their own in their own ways. I mean, you know, I mentioned my, my, my parents didn't have the benefit of a lot of money nor even of a college education. But my mother went to college when she was in her 40s and became a lawyer. Wow. And my brother's a molecular biochemist, very, very smart science scientist. And I think when my brother started to really study transgenderism from a scientific angle, then it was sort of like, man, he really got, really, really got it. You know, he's, oh. you know, if if we're all Star Trek characters, he's definitely Mr. Spock, and he has to, I like it. He has to get it from the scientific angle. <laughs> you know. wow. But I mean, good for him because I think an awful lot of people don't seem to understand that that you know being transgender this is not a choice and I, you know, what I get what does send me over the edge when people talk about the transgender uh, preference or lifestyle they mm -hmm. use these kind of words you know and this is this is we're made in so many different ways uh, just as the the creator or a, a god or a backwards dog or, or whatever you know they call that presence creates us and I mean um, Rather than uh, get rid of the uh, get rid of the uh, exotic competition, I mean, when I think about the world of music. You know, if all, all we ever had to listen to was Beethoven and uh, Chopin, we get very bored of those composers in a hurry. You know, thank goodness we have Poulenc and Turina, and we have Dusek, and we have Frescobaldi, and mm. you know, 
that's why music is so wonderful. You can turn on the channel and you always hear something you've never heard before. Well, you know, human beings are kind of like that. Anyway, I, I kind of digress. It was a learning, it was a learning process for them. Right. And, uh, and I was, it's a very beautiful story actually in my life to see them grow and change. And it made me feel also much more positive about other people's ability to learn and grow and change. And as mentioned, I think people who are under the age of about 30, I, I, this is a non-issue. This is, this is nothing for them. You know? uh, so generationally, things, things improve with them. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot uh, about young people, your work mentoring young people. And I have a question for you about uh, an, another question related to that and to being transgender in the music world. As a pianist, when you're performing, you're always either the soloist or you're part of a small chamber group. And maybe, probably you don't do this much, but of course, maybe you may be playing in the orchestra for Carmina Burana or Sasson Organ Symphony or something like that. But most of the time, you're going to be the center of attention. How does being a transgender pianist and always being the center of attention, how might that differ from, let's say, a violinist who's going to make their career playing in the section of an orchestra and could sort of go through all of this under the radar in a lot of ways? Well, it's, uh, it makes it hard, you know, fortunately for me, I don't have to be a team player. <laughs> I'm not cut out for that role uh, very well uh, at all. Um, you know, I think perhaps being a soloist, even in my pre-transition days, you know, helped prepare me for, okay, now the spotlight is on you. What does it feel like? You have to become very comfortable with being the center of attention. Uh, and that's a, that's a kind of an element to being that kind of musician that does have to come very naturally to you. You call it the charisma factor or whatever, if you want, you know, um, that a lot of people are looking at you, uh, you're setting the standard or you're making the big speech, you know, whatever. I remember being astonished many years ago uh, in the pre-internet age when people read books. There was this book called The Book of Lists by, I think it's Wallachinsky or something. I used to keep this in my bathroom. It's a perfect bathroom book. I mean, bathroom books can be opened in any page yeah. and finished quickly or slowly as, <laughs> as, as desired. And there's this book of, you know, here's this book of lists. So one of the lists is the 10 greatest fears of mankind. So, oh, that's interesting. And I always just... You know, death. I would think that would be number one. Death is number two. Number one is public speaking. speaking. Oh my gosh! Yeah, public speaking. <laughs> it just shocked me <laughs> to read that. So you realize that you know, really, for the vast majority of human beings, the idea of being on a stage and delivering something is more frightening than the prospect of you know the the fickle finger of fate. You know, saying "Time's up, buddy." <laughs> you know, I, I mean, much much more concerned about number two there, you know. Yeah. Um, so I remember that when I go on stage that some people are very terrorized with, with stage fright or, or with asserting themselves uh, publicly, and I feel kind of comfortable with that. Um, you know, I love the applause, every musician does. I love it when people come backstage and say something complimentary in my playing. I love it even more when it's a musician, a, a fellow a colleague or a musician I really admire will come to hear that and, and share something with me of that ilk. But I also have, I, I have the added pleasure of, you know, there are times when, when trans folks come backstage and they give me a, an embrace and they want to take a photo or whatever and they say, 
we're so proud of you being here or I'm so happy to meet you in person or something like that. And I feel like I've, I've touched somebody on a, a even deeper level than, than, than even the music can, can say. I remember the, I still remember the very first time that happened. I just, I kind of burst out in tears. I was, I was very touched about that. And I realized that I, I meant something to, to a certain kind of person that was really, really important. And that I, as much as I didn't anticipate the uh, the negative backlash about career stuff, I also didn't anticipate that kind of thing happening. And I wouldn't say that I necessarily looked forward to that. I never thought of myself as being a social role model, mm. you know. And and I had to learn from a couple of LGBT folks who really were, who were very you know professionals in the in the. PR field and, and really involved, especially in, in uh, important gay rights issues like like uh, AIDS and ACT UP. And I, I got to know Larry Kramer actually pretty well. Um, people who kind of counseled me on this that uh, yeah, whether you want to be or not, you are. <laughs> so you got to you got to do it right. Don't mess it up. Uh, and I've actually now I've gotten old enough. I, I I recently scolded another trans person about something she said or did. I said you never do that. That no no no. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> called scolding grandma yeah. <laughs> actually i gotta practice that's the one where you did that that's very hard to do it it is no 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 <laughs> <laughs> practice that with a finger uh, it's you 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 also mental mentor people i think at the at the educational level you teach we mentioned at temple university and you've also uh, you held faculty positions at manhattan school of music new york university lots of others um I remember reading on your website that you credit, you know, when you were, when you transitioned and you were going through, as you mentioned, those dark couple of years that if it weren't for a teaching job, you might've become homeless. Mm. Um, and I just, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and teaching and, and maybe how that experience changed your view on teaching or if it made you feel differently about it. I became a much better teacher, uh, mm. hands down after transition. Um, I had, been teaching at a couple of schools in New York, and uh, I felt I was a good teacher. Um, but when I lost one of those jobs, and when money was tight, and as I mentioned, I was teaching in this children's school, and my first reaction to it was, oh my God, look where my, my life has tumbled to. But I also looked hard in the mirror and I said, you know, when you're served up lemons, you have to make lemonade. And uh, years before, when I had graduated from Juilliard in age 21 or whatever, I remember with the the attitude of the uh, the diva that I was and uh, and great star star that I deserved to be that it was humiliating to be teaching private lessons to eight year old children or to be going to somebody's house to give a lesson or my first teaching job was at a Third Street Music School settlement downtown mm. on Saturdays uh, this kind of stuff and here I was back to doing that at square one I thought to myself if I'm going to be a teacher I'm going to be a good teacher. I'm going to learn how to be a good teacher of children because I had not, especially a teacher of children, I had thought it was humiliating. Why should I be doing that? I, I should be playing with the Berlin Phil every night. You know, <laughs> what justice would be for me you know, at that time. And uh, I still tell this is a self-complimentary tale on myself. I remember um, one of the first students I had at that little Westchester school, this little girl comes in and she looks every bit like Peppermint Patty out of the peanut <laughs> cartoon strip. She, her hair's a mess. She's got some dirt on her face because she was playing in the mud and she, you know, whatever. And she sits down at the piano. And she said, to, I said, nice to meet you. What was her name? And I suddenly, I always remember her name. And now I'm telling this story. I get the, 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 the you know, old age block. 
what it was her name I forgot uh, Katie Katie Welsh that's it I said uh, Katie I'm happy to be teaching you and she sort of like she stuck her tongue out like that and then she then she said I hate the piano <laughs> <laughs> and you know and I realized you know parents had probably dropped her off for a little bit of babysitting you know whatever you know so here I am you know former professor teaching this kid and I said you know what I hate the piano too. Sometimes I really hate the piano. And I started to pound with my fist and say, here, help me out. Let's beat it up. You know, she, she loved doing that, you know, until she was exhausted, you know. And I said, but the piano can be very beautiful too. And I started to play Nocturne 4 and she liked that. And a couple of years later, her last lesson, I remember I was teaching her and, and, um, and uh, these two years that had passed, I had really dedicated myself to not teaching music per se, but teaching, sharing my love of music with young people. Because in 30 minutes with a young person who may not have any musical talent at all, you're not going to teach them to play a scale really, really well, but you can teach them to really love interaction with the piano yeah. and with sharing music with somebody. Uh, and uh, anyway, at her last lesson, I remember saying, I have some big news I'm going to tell you. You're going to have a different teacher next year because I'm moving to Canada, to Vancouver. She said, where's Vancouver? And I Point and drew a little map and said it was all the way over there. So it's three thousand miles away. You know, blah, blah, blah. She burst out crying. I said, mm -hmm. "Why? Why are you crying? What are you crying? What's the matter?" She said, "Because I love the piano." Oh. I thought, now I know how to be a good teacher. Wow. I mean, you know, I have to say that getting out of the conservatory environment, where I was concerned with, you know, how people, how they're going to do on the juries, and are they going to win the concerto competition, and you know competition with the other teachers for this and just simply working with children it was the greatest blessing my pedagogy could ever have had and although i you know since then i taught in vancouver and now it's in philadelphia i am teaching high level people but you know if you don't teach with that kind of level of joy as, as your foundation then really what are you teaching you know yeah a couple of skill sets but you're not teaching anything that really has the potential to make a difference in people's lives and also other people's lives because people love music they share that with as many people they can you know it's a very exponential uh kind of thing mm -hmm. so i have to say this is you know one of the greatest blessings of my life was being forced to be a teacher of children mm -hmm. it taught me a lot. and i say this to all my graduating students also because so many of them will be in that situation soon after they get out of college and coping with something that, you know, it's hard to teach pedagogy uh, as a subject. You can teach about books and sources and all that, but really meeting young people, really young people, six, seven, eight, yeah. nine, ten years old, week to week, and informing their love of music, the arts, creativity, a whole worldview. That's, that's a different challenge every day, you know, every lesson. And I can relate directly to that. Part of my job as the associate conductor here at the Canton Symphony sure. is working with the Youth Symphony. Uh-huh. And yeah, I, my goal with them, and I, when I came in, I, I got a conservatory master of music and conducting. Yeah. I don't, I'm not an educator. I don't have that background. And it, okay, kids, Mahler 5? Uh, <laughs> almost that bad. Brahms 2, and uh, that was a huge mistake, but I learned from it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the thing that I have just loved about it is that I'm exposing these kids to these great orchestral masterworks for the first time. And at the beginning of this season, which is all online so far, the fall has been all online, 
I asked each of them to introduce themselves and say what their favorite piece of music was and uh, orchestral music. I would say 90% of them mentioned a piece that we played in youth orchestra. And yeah. it was just the most profound experience. Yeah. I mean, I did not get into this to work with kids. I got into the business to work with professionals. And yeah. uh, it was just such a profound experience to realize the, that impact that I had had. Yeah. So I can yeah, very absolutely. much relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you make an impact as a teacher on an individual level far more than, say, I mean, years ago I gave children's concerts where I play and I right. talk to them and be an entertainer. But I don't know how much of an impact that really makes. I, I, I remember as a child also in public school, once a year they'd take us to the Baltimore Symphony and they'd give a children's concert. Yeah. Boy, I hated it. <laughs> they were all, oh. one of those people, they're talking down to me. That, this is a viola. And I, I was the one I wanted to run and say, yeah, you don't know how to play it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness! There we go, Rachel. Yeah, that's what my the job. Children, oh, of, no. what the children of Canton are <laughs> no. thinking as they watch the kinder concert. I, you know, I hope that I. That's that's been my goal since getting this job is figuring out because I I, I would read scripts from other you know other kinder concerts and I always felt I was like this feels condescending to children they're smarter than this and so they I are, always yeah, they they I think know, they know what those they know are. what they are they're they're smart <laughs> they're smart kids are smart so that's been a that's been a learning experience for me is how do I actually inform children of things that are going to actually be important I think we did a good job this year with the absolutely I think unquestionably so but so much of our world still doesn't understand gender dysphoria and what it means to be transgender and there are even some people who as you mentioned believe it's a preference believe it's a choice mm -hmm. all of these things how do you enter into conversations about your identity with that population or maybe do you choose not to I think I've been spared that for the most part. I haven't been put in a situation where I've been challenged on it or asked that. And um, there again, I mean, we were just talking about working with kids one-on-one. -on -one. I think what really changes people's minds is not an intellectual argument, but um, when when people know someone who mm. is GLBT, I, there's, there's a lot of different acronyms. There's, mm -hmm. I think the longest one is GLBTQIA+. Yes. <laughs> okay, I got everybody there. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in recent times, uh, I've had conversations, I don't want to bring up politics here, but uh, a conversation about will the Supreme Court uh, reverse itself on, on various things. And uh, I'm not sure that really can happen. You know, it's it's one thing to say, yeah, I don't believe in gay marriage. I don't believe, you know, trans people and blah, 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 blah. It's another thing when that gay person is your uncle, when that trans person is your aunt, you know, it's, it's and America has moved a lot, you know, so it's not like that's some sort of abstract, otherwise entity that I don't know about down the street there. I mean, it's mostly in the smaller towns where maybe, you know, that's a lot more rare, right. where you have these kind of problems. But in the big cities, my goodness, I, I, right. I mean, you know. If I go up to, if I take the train up to New York and I walk, just walking around Manhattan, I mean, on any given time, I absolutely see people I identify as trans walking around. I never used to see that. You know? Yeah. So, um, I know, fortunately, I've been sort of spared that. Mm -hmm. But if I had to write a book on how to <laughs> explain it, I think I would just say, well, the best argument I can always think about is to put it in terms of music. I mean, you know, the music is who we are. Uh, they were... They were gay composers. There was Samuel Barber and 
Peter Tchaikovsky, and we, we hear that in their music because it's a part of their identity. And our identity is not, you know, to a great extent, not chosen. You know, I mean, our foundation is exactly who we are. You know, I mean, if I get flippant about it, I could say to people, uh-huh, and at what age did you decide to be straight? <laughs> <laughs> and when did you decide to be Hispanic? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, they, of course, would argue, oh, that's different. It's not the same, but it is yeah. the same. It's, yeah. it's, it's our identity. It's, yeah. our, it's our oneness as, as human beings. And it's exactly why, you know, when I was, I don't know, three, four years old and starting to read, one of my favorite books was Madeline by, by Ludwig mm. Bemelmans about the, the little French yeah. girl in the, in the 12. In 12, an old house in Paris well, that was covered with vines, yes. lived 12 little girls <laughs> in two straight lines. That's right. And the littlest one was Madeline. Right. Yes, exactly. I remember holding that up. My mother was making a cake in the kitchen. You know, she used to make cakes. You know, women used to live like Betty Crocker in those days. <laughs> Mommy, can I have a yellow hat like Madeline's? And she said, no, honey, that's for girls. And I said, but mommy, I want to yell a hat like Madeline. You know, that doesn't come out of the mouth of somebody who's, you know, choosing. Hmm, I think I'll choose the transgender lifestyle over the heterosexual. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's the whole thing. It is not easy to be a member of the LGBT community in society. And um, it's, of course, easier now, but it's not easy. So, of course, why would anyone choose a more difficult path than than what they have to in order to function in society. I'm a little sorry to say, I mean, this, uh, I'm going to lay a lot of this on, on the, the media empires and so forth. I mean, when's the last, you know, you look at television shows and so forth where gay people like RuPaul are seen as extravagant, uh, fantastical characters leading these glamorous lifestyles of the rich and famous with huge, you know, Hollywood swimming pools out in California or something like that. I mean, the reality of that is, is far from it. And I recall leaving a um, support group meeting, I don't know, probably around 1995 this was, walking down the street. And I saw, as one always sees in Manhattan, you know, a beggar on the street lying on the sidewalk begging for coin. And I took a double take and I saw a transgender lady is mm. lying there in, dirty and with a cup in her hand. And I thought to myself, this can be me in a year, you know, easily, yeah. you know why not you know no i mean a lot of especially trans folks have very difficult lifestyles we, and we know there yeah. there are um there are a lot of murders in the yeah. trans community as well and myself i was i was the uh, attempted uh, recipient of a date rape incident uh, soon after i transitioned which opened my eyes a lot to things that bad things that can happen um but i'm going to be a bit of a I can't, it's radio, I can't, certain things I can't, it's a hard A, I don't finish <laughs> it myself, because I gave this advice to a young trans person not too long ago, she had written me an email and was complaining about this and that and this and that, I said, you know, back in the day, this older gay Catholic fellow gave me this advice in a sermon that I really inspired me, he said, you know, you can sit and complain that life isn't fair, we don't have our rights and all kinds, I've been discriminated, but you know, you you bought a ticket. You bought the ticket of integrity. It's a very expensive ticket. A lot of people don't feel like buying that ticket, and they seem to do all right. But you bought that ticket, and now this is part of the price of the ticket. And I don't mean to diminish anybody's hardships at all, but mm -hmm. it is part of it. it. Is I've never forgotten that phrase: the price of the ticket. You 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 choose to embrace yourself fully, whether it's 
straight, gay, lesbian, trans, color, religion, anything that is you, and you decide to live it to the fullest and be a person of integrity, you're going to get people who don't respect it and don't understand it and problems. And then you have to cope with it because that is part of the price of the ticket. And uh, realizing, as I did, um, another story I'll tell is the time I was going to a faculty meeting. I was mid-transition, but I was living in two genders. It was a nightmare, mm. you know, living this professional life, wearing men's clothing and going to this faculty meeting and putting on this suit and tie and thinking, my God, this feels like a suit of armor and a mask. And I went to that faculty meeting and I sat there and I looked at these people in this school that was soon decide, going to decide that I didn't need to be there. And every single one of them was wearing a suit of armor and a mask. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm taking mine off. These people are never, you know, I, I suddenly felt very sorry for them. Yeah. You know, a lot of people go through life choosing to let the integrity part go for what? For a house, for a car, for some money in the bank, for social status, for power, for getting along, for fear, for, I mean, I don't, I started to sound like a, like a Sunday sermon, but, um, there you are. I mean, you know, Mozart didn't have an easy life. Bach did some time in jail. <laughs> you know, losers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That you, you bring up, I mean, you bring up so many things that, that uh, I mean, we could talk for probably hours about so many probably. things. And I know we've already been talking for quite a while and I don't want to take up, you know, too much of your time. I mean, yeah, we, the issue of the, the disproportionate amount of the homeless population in America that is LGBTQ. And, uh, you know, th that issue, especially in homeless youth, I think it's about 40% that identify. And I, especially the dangers that transgender people face in that arena, that's, you know, it's a whole conversation in and of itself about those issues. And, um, and, and, you know, setting that aside, you know, all that, is one thing and then there's also the fact that you chose to or you you chose to transition you made that choice and now you're living your life as a woman uh do you feel that it changed just because you're you know now that people can physically see you as a woman do you feel like that has affected you at all now that you're living life as a woman as opposed to uh your life as a as a male before your transition well, that's a, that's that's a huge conversation opener yeah. because it, it, it speaks to uh, gender expectations. And you know, I recall during the time of transition, getting plenty of advice. I had a therapist that I had to see, you know, and so forth. And I remember buying a VHS. Remember VHS tapes? <laughs> yeah, your voice to sound like a woman, you know. And I was watching this wow. thing, and this. This person is explaining how you have to pitch it higher, and then of course, and, and I, it was when when she got to the part where she said, "Now, women are naturally much more deferential than men, <laughs> and don't assert themselves too strongly. So when you finish say, making a statement, turn to your male colleagues and ask them their opinion. Don't finish a question, don't finish a statement with a period, but either that's how I see it. How about you?" That's when I took the tape out and I threw it out the window. Wow. <laughs> you know, wow. I've been upset about, you know, stuff that goes along with being male my entire life. And now I'm going to throw that out the window and instead take on all this, this stuff, you know. And oh the female education that I've gotten from about the age of, say, about 34 forward, you know, I've been 
at times terribly appalled at what women are supposed to swallow and digest <laughs> as this is this is perfectly fine behavior young lady i mean uh, <laughs> i mean i'm extending to by the way in canada i had one incident um, i got received an email from a male colleague uh and he was mad about something i had done or said whatever and he sent this email and he said you know you elected to become a woman now you should effing act like that. <gasps> oh my gosh wow i would be livid i'm livid right now just listening to you oh my god talk. that was that was a rather appalling thing to wow. to see but i took it upon myself to knock on his door a little later in the afternoon and i said i'm going to do you a very very important favor that you're never going to forget and that is i'm not going to take your email to the president of this university <laughs> and have your job taken away you can thank me later <laughs> wow wow that yeah i'm not sure that would have happened but i of course wanted to scare right him, uh <laughs> because i was as livid as you maybe even oh maybe even more yeah, so for but, sure. um but uh you know it tells you i mean you know uh, it's it's really interesting a trans 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 men i mean as women people who are born female and then transition to male experience a kind of a rise in status and ability and, and all the rest of it and it's just the opposite yeah. for men jumping into into uh, the female wow. situation you know um and that's that's part of this price of the ticket also uh, but oh uh, um you know i would say something also kind of equally appalling i mean I'm, i don't think any therapist would say this today but one of my therapists said to me in a conversation i i said to her you know you've been putting this wall between me and starting hormone therapy is there anybody that you that you uh, approve for hormone therapy and reassignment right away. And she said, well, yeah, of course. I said, well, who, who gets that? And she said, well, you know, they're losers. They're on drugs. They have nothing, you know, whatever. And I said, but, but not me. And she, I said, I work with my emotions every day of my life. You don't trust how I feel. She said, well, but you have so much to lose. You've got a life, you've got a career. Wow. You know, meaning even this was a female therapist, by the way pointing out to me that the acquisitions of, of a male career were obviously far more valuable than my integrity and happiness as a wow. human being in her eyes. You know, I mean, you can go on with this for, for, yeah. for many, many hours. I mean, Gosh. we have a long, long road to go to achieve real gender, understanding parity, equality, you know, et cetera, in this, in this country uh, as well, you know, and, and, uh, Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I that yeah. I think it's interesting as someone who's lived their entire life as a, as a woman. Some of those things, you know, you, you just live your life, and the fact that you 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 saying them out loud, I would I was re angry about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. Oh my. Yeah. And my experience as as a man, of course, for my entire life, I think that I was completely oblivious for many many years about the difficulties that women experience that men simply don't i mean even yeah, things they, like they, getting they, are tend they tend to be clues about it. i mean you know it's really interesting i think some of my students often come to me for personal advice because they feel like i have some sort of inside dope that most ladies don't have you know like i've 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 been a tra i've been a traitor or a spy for the other side <laughs> <laughs> There's a little bit of truth to that. I, I remember one of the most uncomfortable memories of my of my teenage years was being in high school gym class, and you come in from 
Oh my God, you know, and, and sports were, listen, don't let my love of Philadelphia Eagles football <laughs> fool you. I, I hated gym class. I hated the gym teacher. I hated every single moment of it, you know, and listening to these 14 and 15 year old boys talk about the party they had gone to and what they had done with this girl or that girl and the way they would refer to women, young women and their bodies was so horrifying. And it's a kind of training, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of a kind of a school bully, you know, club, you know, to fit in, you're going to boast about this, and you're going to talk in a certain way. And that's how you get in, you know. So even to the point where, you know, grown men, you can talk about, well, I didn't mean that that's just locker room talk. Mm -hmm. well, why, why is locker room talk never about Raphael and his frescoes? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Wow. You know, and I want to say, by the way, I, I played the piano at the New York Mets LGBT um, night, Pride night, a few years ago, and then um, a big LGBT organization gave a big check to, to or, or the Mets gave a check to this organization. I was on the field for a little bit, and this player, uh, Jerry Blevins, the relief pitcher, who's like 20 feet tall, <laughs> comes up to me and he says, I loved your playing. He says, you know, my favorite composer is Mozart. I like Ina Klein and knock music. And I was like bowled over. I was like blown away. You know, who knew, you know, and I thought, boy, the world has changed. You know, like, you know, they Amazing. all, you know, they all like rock music and you know, <laughs> whatever. Right. And this guy took the time and trouble to say to me that, hey, you know, he, he like, you know, here's this piece that he knows and he likes. Oh, wow. And I was so touched by that. And that's, that's just, that's, you know, so, I mean, just because you like, and I really do love baseball, just because you <laughs> like, you know, but this is, this is something that, you know, as I made that gender transition, you know, I mean, I, I gave up a lot of things that later I just re-embraced. It's like, well, why do I have to give that up? Because that's considered male. I like that. I like going to baseball games. I like smoking a cigar sometimes. George Son did too. You know, huh? Anyway. That is so heartwarming that Jerry Blevins likes likes oh, Mozart. Man. That that's really cool to better, me. I wish he was a better pitcher, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I remember him. I I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan. I feel like I, I remember him pitching against us. I I I know that name. I, I certainly know that name. Yeah, I was kind of like blown away. You know that that, that yeah, you can find a few baseball players actually know a few things about culture. They don't all have to be you know uneducated <laughs> slobbering jocks. You know, <laughs> it's not a requirement for the job. You know, you don't have to scratch your crotch and spit tobacco. There we go. <laughs> wow. Add to the job resume the the, the description. You know, I would love to see someone draw up a professional prospectus. You know, for yeah. baseball player must wow. be you know. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> moving on. So, uh, <laughs> moving on a little bit, as uh, from our conversation about your experience as a transgender person in the world of music, in general, we're going through an, a historic experience with the COVID nineteen pandemic right now, and even before that, a lot of changes had been going on in the orchestral music field. Uh, the audiences aging and the orchestra is constantly looking for new ways to attract audiences and then of course the COVID-19 pandemic arrived right where do you see the orchestral industry today and where do you see it going in the future well i mean there are profound changes in life so much only to 
to technology primarily. And on the one hand, uh, those of us who have a very uh, traditional view of classical music are you know, sort of terrified out of our minds, oh my god, the, or the audience is all aging and dying and there's nothing to replace it. Um, but in fact, I think more young people are watching and listening to classical music than ever before. They're just not doing it at a live concert. They're flipping on YouTube and watching five to ten minutes of something that they find really interesting. Mm. And then they flick to something else that might be country western or rock or indie or you know whatever their their sense of music is far more cosmopolitan than that and the fact of covid could, can be something very very positive for the orchestras to embrace in terms of programming away from everything's always you know we'll have the overture the uh concerto and then the symphony to finish up to let's have you know a string quartet and then we'll have a big brass fanfare then we'll have a little dance piece and then we'll have you know whatever the the symphony at the end or something like that mm. i myself i had to fight like hell with this presenter in new york for a recital i gave about three years ago and the centerpiece of the program for me was this work for piano and dancer and she absolutely was a the presenter was adamantly opposed to it said, no no it's a soul recital you can't have a dancer on there and I said, that's what's really going to make the recital. And I argued and fought and fought and fought and fought. And then I finally, I threatened to not play at all. Mm. And that's when she gave in. And then when it was done, she said, oh, I'm so glad you talked me into the dancer. That was the center of the program. It's like, duh, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't trust me on that. Uh, bold steps are certainly required in terms of what are you doing as a, as a, as a program. And I see that, you know, I feel like the diversity that is perhaps being foisted on people now as a result of, BLM and Me Too and et cetera is a really, really positive step. Mm -hmm. I myself, I recently read Alex Ross wrote this column in the, in the New Yorker magazine and he mentioned about four or five uh, black American composers. And I was sitting there saying, yeah, well, you mentioned this one and this one, but you forgot this one, this one, this one, this one. I have so many others that just have not been played. You know, the conservative streak of programming has been yeah a blot on the classical industry for, for decades, you know, I mean, it's, it's long overdue mm -hmm. to expand the repertoire that orchestras play. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's one part of the puzzle that needs to be, uh, needs to be done. Right. Um, I think identifying the audience is also terribly, terribly important. I never understood why, uh, you know, uh, neighborhoods with huge Hispanic populations, such as New York, why doesn't the Philharmonic go up to the Bronx and play all Dominican programs for the people up there. I mean, it's, it's mm. huge Dominican and Puerto Rican populations up there. And there's an incredible trove of music uh, like that. I myself have played a recital in Hostos College in, uh, southern, uh, in the southern part of the Grand Concourse. And I gave an all Hispanic program with a lot of Puerto Rican piano pieces. And some of the ladies that came back afterwards, they were so grateful. They said, yeah, none of our young people know those composers anymore. It's really important that people like you play it. You know, well, yeah, hello, I mean, you, you have to. You know? right. I mean, that's, just, that's just sort of de rigueur. So I don't know why, why would I go to Hostess College and play an all Beethoven program? I, what, am I, what am I attempting to do? Right. You know, who are you connecting with? Who, how are you talking to people? It's like going to Spain. I don't know any Spanish, but I'm going to have a great time. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you, if you hop large just un poquito, <laughs> I have a much much more fun time i i should i should say um but covid i mean itself is 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 such a huge blot on so many things and um i mean i i again i'm not i promise not to get any political discussions and we need to go 360 from the way we're handling this and, and my spouse is japanese and we spent a lot of time in japan and i saw they had 
I think over the last two weeks they've had 100 people die from COVID. You know, compare that with what we're dealing with here. We have to we have to embrace the mask as a patriotic act, and we have to care about each other and stop thinking about what's good for me. This is, I mean, COVID is a real challenge in terms of, do we think of ourselves as a United States of America where we all care about our neighbor, mm -hmm. regardless of what our neighbor's color, skin, religious or political affiliation is, or whatever, do we care? Mm -hmm. uh, so that in itself it makes for a, an atmosphere for great music if we can channel it, yeah. I'd say. I think to, to finish off our conversation today, um, you know, we, we call this podcast orchestrating change because we realize that change needs to be done. We need to do things. And so um, from your, you know, your perspective, what do you think organizations like the Canton Symphony and us as individuals could take to orchestrate change that we see on stage on, you know, in our audience, but then also just being specific to your experience to be better allies and to, highlight that experience and the LGBTQ experience and, and really um, be the, the best uh, proponents for change that, that we can be? Well, oh my God, you asked me. These are... If I answer this question, well, I want a job as the new executive director. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to Michelle. <laughs> Actually, no, I don't want that job. That's a very, very hard job. I mean, because I, I, my, what comes to mind is sort of metaphorically what I was what I was saying a little while ago about how do we educate kids about music? Yeah. Probably not from a concert stage. I think as a social service organization, I think you go to where people are and you bring the music to them, whether it's in their schools, it's in their hospitals, it's in their homes, it's in their place of work. You know, I mean, if I were running my own, you know, Buchner Symphony Orchestra, I know I would have trios and string quartets and brass quintets and uh, percussion ensembles galore little packets of people and sending them out like good humor ice cream trucks <laughs> everywhere come hear the glory of this stuff hey we'll talk to you about this you want to see what this is let's listen to this today hey this is kind of fun this is cool you know education always happens in the schools and if our schools have not done what they really can and should in terms of arts education then i think we have to be prepared to go into the schools uh and do that and you know it's a little bit of a problem for those of us with a traditional conservatory education as i've alluded to for me the first time i had to teach a six-year-old how to play the piano my god i was stunned i was horrified i was stupefied i didn't know what i was doing you know now somebody says, you know, I want you to go and play for an audience of four and five-year-olds. It's like, great, where is it? Let's, let's, go, let's have some fun. Let's go and do it. You have to have that, that perspective and I think that mentality and that willingness to do it. Because if that, if that artistry, if that creativity is, is as important to the human animal as nutrition, uh, basic nutrition, as in learning to read and learning to write and, and, and to add and so forth, then we have to approach it that way. This is, this, is, this is mother's milk. We all need it. It enhances our lives. It gives meaning to our lives. It, it can change. It absolutely can change your perspective on many, many things. One of the things I took away from a few years during my transition, I lived mostly in the Bronx in New York City in a pretty rundown neighborhood. And I was always so touched. I would go to the little Catholic church across the street. I knew the, uh, the gal who was leading the children's choir. And I looked at those little kids and I thought every single one of those kids who's holding a music book today is not holding a gun or an injection needle mm -hmm. or a vial of cocaine. Those kids are holding creativity in their hands this Sunday. 
and learning what that's all about. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you know, in some of the school orchestras, they're holding a violin, they're holding a flute. They don't want to hold a gun. They can do such magical things with those instruments, you know. And if every kid in the Bronx was holding one of those things, well, we'd have a very different Bronx, and we'd probably have a very different United States of America, too. Uh, I am, I will say politically, here's one thing I will say is that I'm very, very anti-gun person. I always have been. Uh, and, but I don't get angry at people who collect and treasure their guns and so forth. I mostly, no, I feel, I feel saddened. You can't make music with a gun, mm -hmm. but you can with a violin. Yeah. They should try that. Hold it. I, I bet they wouldn't want that gun so much anymore. Wow. Ah, that's, that's, okay, that's my political <laughs> Amazing. Well, Sarah, it has been an absolute yeah. privilege to speak with you this morning. It was, it was wow. truly an honor. Yeah. And I, I'm, I feel so moved by the conversation that we have just had, and hopefully our listeners will as well. If you have any parting thoughts for us before we let you go... Oh, not a lot, except I'm certainly looking forward to being with you all again. I can't wait to go to Canton again, as I said, not only to play the orchestra, but to see that football hall of fame. Which <laughs> I've never seen. But I think especially to be uh, making music with Gerhardt, that he is one of the greatest conductors I've ever worked with. He also has a heart as wide as the Pacific Ocean. Uh, he's, he's a very, very wonderful man, and he has his own you know, really amazing life story to mm -hmm. share with you. And, uh, I think we've we've also connected on that level on a, on a few a few times a few conversations. I just adore that man in every possible way. <laughs> I adore the orchestra. Uh, so let's hope that um, times improve uh, soon and get better, and we're all able to be having this conversation in person once again ASAP and getting down to the really important work of uh, giving voice to Mozart and making that heard by as many people as possible. Well, I can promise you, if I am still around when you are next a soloist with the Canton Symphony Orchestra, I will personally attend the Pro Football Hall of Fame with you. Oh, well, my goodness. Okay, there we can lay a wreath at the picture of Nick Foles. Oh, <laughs> I hope there aren't any of those in there for that. Oh, no. <laughs> Two words, Philly special. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> well, no, we don't want to end with that. Peace, pace. Let's all get. Can we all get along, please? Absolutely. <laughs> Sarah Buchner is a world-renowned pianist who has appeared as a soloist with the Canton Symphony Orchestra three times, and hopefully many more once we get out of the pa the pandemic. Sarah, thank you again for talking with us today. Thank you all so much. Thank okay, you. all the best. Take care. Bye Take bye. care. Bye. The Erie Philharmonic continues its journey around the musical world with another free broadcasted concert. Delve into the Russian soul with Tchaikovsky, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, and more alongside the music from contemporary composer Lyra Auerbach. You can check out the concert for free on Thursday, January 24th at 8 p.m. or Sunday, January 24th at 2 p.m. and on the Erie Philharmonic's Facebook page or online at wqln.org slash eriephil. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer is Nathan Maslick. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.